So we are in our Best Day Ever series. And we, uh, several weeks ago, we looked at God's promises are the best ever. Then we looked at God's presence is the best ever. And then today we'll look at, whoa, there we go. God's plan is the best ever. The wind is ferocious today. So we're going to look at looking into Mark chapter 14. Jesus, on this Palm Sunday, he comes into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. The palm branches, it's called Palm Sunday because the people were praising him, Hosanna, 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 as he came into Jerusalem. But as we'll see, the crowd quickly changed their tune. Jesus had his last supper with the, his disciples up in the upper room, and then he, they went into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And that's where we'll pick up our text this morning in Mark chapter 14. It's in your U version there if you'd like to read along. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. He said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough, the hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And at this point in our story is when they lift up their eyes and they see Judas and the temple guards coming to take Jesus away to be tried and ultimately to be crucified. You know, one of the first things that we notice when we read this text is that Jesus does not go to his death with the defiance and bravery that we would expect. I mean, I think, you know, American cinema kind of has conditioned us to this idea that the world's greatest heroes have died with a fist in the air toward the evil empire. I mean, we like to think about movies like Braveheart or, or you know, um, Iron Man dying in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, those type of things, or Gladiator dying defiantly saying, you can't scare me, I'll never back down. That's kind of what we have our, our minds conditioned toward. But that's not how Jesus is going to his death. He's trembling. We see here in this passage, he's weak, he's scared. And what's really strange about this is that everywhere else, Jesus shows an unflinching courage in the face of danger. Right before this, Jesus' disciples are telling him that he's crazy for going to Jerusalem. 
They said, Jesus, they're after you. They want to get you. Don't go to Jerusalem. Because he's sure to be in danger. But Jesus has always been the bold and the brave one throughout all of the Gospels. And it's not like he's withering in the face of pain either. Because the first aspect of the torture has yet to begin. All he is is praying here in the garden. In verses 33 and 34, there's a very strange phrase that says, He began to be distressed and troubled. What was happening in this garden? Why was he so distressed and troubled? The text says he was troubled by it. The word troubled is a very strong word in the Greek that means to be overcome by shocking horror. What was it that Jesus saw in the Garden of Gethsemane that troubled him so much? What was it that was, he saw that was so overwhelming to him? It says in verse 34, it says, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. What troubled him so much? You know, Jesus is not one to exaggerate. He said, what I saw almost killed me. You know, Luke says he was under such strain that he began to sweat drops of blood. Think about the stress and the horror. You know, there's a a medical term for it, hematridosis. Under such stress that your capillaries burst. It is a medical condition. And here is Jesus who spoke the worlds into existence, who walked on top of the angry waves of the Sea of Galilee, who calmed the fiercest storm, who cast out demons, who healed the sick, who made the dead to rise, that he is so horrified that something he sees has him distressed to the point of death, crying out to the Father in agony. What was it that he saw? What was it that had him so distressed? He saw the judgment for our sin that he was about to take on himself. That's what he saw. Notice verse 36. He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Abba, Father is the closest term of endearment but yet you see here he has no response from the father you see up until this point he has enjoyed an intimacy with the father he often withdrew to go and and be alone with God to draw strength the father had always radiated with this kind of openness toward him sometimes even affirming him publicly as we see in his baptism but yet now there's only silence And so he stumbles back to his disciples, looking almost for some kind of comfort in his human companions. And what does he find them doing? Nodding off, sleeping. He wakes them up and says, guys, I need you now. I need you. He needed somebody, but they are asleep. So verse 39, he goes back again to the father and he says, the exact same exact thing, and again, the Father is silent. So what is happening here in this passage? What's going on? New Testament scholar William Lane says that the only explanation is that God was already turning his face away from the Son because of the sin that the Son was about to take on himself. The crucifixion is already beginning. Before the first nail was driven into his body, Jesus is 
had already been abandoned by God. Jesus had lived his life, you see, for the approval of the Father. And now, in the moment that, that Jesus needed the Father most, God was turning his face away from him because God could not look upon his sin. The sin that Jesus was going to take, our sin that Jesus was going to take upon himself. And Jesus staggered under the weight of it, almost to the point of death. Utter aloneness. Have you ever felt alone? A trusted friend turns on you. Someone you cared about betrays you. Your parents maybe fail you. Jesus felt that. He felt that aloneness. The separation from the Father because of the sin he was about to bear. And his human companions were just asleep. Alone. I don't even think there's an analogy for this. There's really nothing to which we can compare it to, nothing that we can really help us understand. Somehow in that moment, Jesus experienced the equivalent of an eternity in hell for us. And in that moment, all of heaven fell silent, unable to comprehend what was happening, unable to comprehend the severing of the relationship between the Father and the Son. We sing a worship song here. It's one of my favorite. And the song says, I'll never know how much it cost to see my sin upon the cross. Probably nothing we sing has more truth. We don't understand the significance of our sin before holy God and what Jesus did for us. In Gethsemane, Jesus started into the horrors of hell and almost died from it and then voluntarily went into it for us. That's what hell is, you see, complete abandonment by God. You see, when I was young, I always thought what made Jesus' death so bad were the physical horrors of a crucifixion, and they are bad. They are terrible. You see, Cicero said one of the, the Roman goals on the cross was utter humiliation, because the cross was so painful, men would weep and vomit and urinate all over themselves. The Romans would beat them to they were, until they were barely recognizable. The prophet Isaiah said that Jesus would be beaten to the point where he didn't look like a man. That he would be unrecognizable. And he was nailed on that cross, naked, in a public place, in full light of day. So yes, the physical horrors of the cross were awful. They were terrible. But listen, that's not in Gethsemane. Jesus was not yet facing that in Gethsemane. That would come in the coming days. What made Jesus stagger, it was the abandonment my God he faced. That was the horror of the cross for him. In Gethsemane, Jesus looked into the full cup of God's wrath, and it overwhelmed him so much, it almost killed him in the garden. Isaiah 51, 17 prophesies that describes God's wrath for our sin like a toxic poison in a cup. And as that cup was offered to us, Jesus stepped into the way and he drank that cup of poison of death, of our sin for us, all the way to the last drop. 
And he turned that cup over and he said on the cross, it is finished. You know, you think about what Jesus did for us. Would we really entertain the idea that there's multiple ways to God? Understanding what Jesus went through twice in this passage that we just read, Jesus asked the Father, is there another way? And twice he got silence, which was a no. The only way to relationship with God is through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is no other way. There are not multiple ways up the, the mountain to God. No, there is only one way. And his name is Jesus, and that is confirmed for us in this passage. God had a plan to save us, and we see that God's plan is always the best. God's way is the only way, and it is the best. If I could only have been there and tried to stop Jesus, Jesus would have said, no, that is not your cup, this is my cup of God's wrath to drink. The gospel at its core is thinking about substitution. Jesus in my place. Offered to you as a gift. To which I ask, have you ever received God's free gift of salvation? That's what Gethsemane means for you and your salvation. Let me tell you what it means for you as you walk through the dark valleys of pain and loneliness that this life will ultimately bring to us through our different stages. When we think about Gethsemane, we think about this, this passage that we read, we should stand amazed at his love for you in that darkest hour. The cross, Paul says, puts on display the love of God for us. The great orator and preacher Jonathan Edwards asked the question, why did God let Jesus see this before the cross? If anything, wasn't that kind of dangerous? Why didn't God wait until Jesus was secure on the cross to show him his wrath? Why did God show it to him now, prior to the cross? It was so that we could see Jesus go to the cross voluntarily, knowing full well what he was about to experience, so that his love for us could be seen even more. He voluntarily went to the cross knowing what he was about to experience because he saw it here in the garden. It was so we could see Jesus go voluntarily knowing full well what he was about to experience. The circumstances of the cross were designed to put God's love for us on display. God turned his back on his most beloved son because God so loved the world and this was his only way to save it. Isaiah 43 says, He went to the cross because we were precious in his sight. So number one, when we think about this passage, we should stand amazed at his love for us in his darkest hour. Number two, believe in his love for you in your darkest hour. 
Because Jesus faced utter aloneness, rejection by God in my place. I never have to fear being forsaken by God. Man, isn't that comforting? Think about that. Because Jesus faced it for me. If we as believers, if we are followers of Christ, we never have to experience being alone. Because God says, I am always there. He took my place. Any condemnation, any rejection, any aloneness I deserve, he took it. So I can now say there is no condemnation. And when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear evil because you are with me. Jesus took evil in my place. Goodness and mercy will follow me because you took evil and wrath in my place. You substituted for me. You stood in my place. You took the, the, the death, the penalty of death that should have been mine. You will never be saken, forsaken because Jesus was forsaken on your behalf. So when you say, in life, when life gets hard and difficult, God, where are you? Why don't you stop this? God, why aren't you doing something? Gethsemane helps us remember that the one thing you never need to doubt is his love for you in your darkest hour. John Owen said that in light of the cross, the greatest unkindness you could do to God is to doubt his love for you. So when you feel alone, like no one cares, like you were forgotten, look to Gethsemane. If God didn't abandon you at this point when hell was literally squeezing the life of, out of him, why would he abandon you now? See, maybe you have been forgotten by the most intimate of human relationships, by someone close to you, maybe by a parent who walked away from you when you were young, by a spouse who left you, a friend who betrayed you, a child who has rejected you, but your God, your heavenly Father, cannot and will not abandon you. He is forever with you. He went through Gethsemane. He went through hell to rescue you. And he is literally, as he looks at the nail scars in his hands and his feet, they remind him. And so when you're discouraged, when you feel alone or abandoned or depressed, you have to come here to the Garden of Gethsemane and preach this gospel here to yourself. You have to tell yourself, I feel abandoned, but I am not, because Gethsemane proves it. And he did not withhold his son from me, will he not now also give me all things. Can anything separate me from the love that is in Christ Jesus, Paul asked. And he answers that question with nothing. We need to preach this gospel to our despondent selves. We need to stop listening to our fearful, doubting hearts and start preaching the gospel to it. Defy those feelings of despondency with the faith of the gospel on display here in Gethsemane. 
And when you can say with Paul in pain that through the outward man, is, though he is dying, the inward man is renewed in Christ day by day. Though I am poor, yet in Christ I am rich. Though I have nothing, yet in him I possess all things. 2 Corinthians 6.10 So, believe in his love for you in his darkest hour. And we must also read the Great Commission through the lens of Gethsemane. The God who tells us to go is this same Savior of Gethsemane. Is he not worth giving up our lives for? Is he not worth pursuing him? Is he not worth loving? Is he not worth telling the world around us about this wonderful God? Shouldn't they know what he has done and give him glory for it? Isn't this Savior worthy of our worship? Is he not worthy of our glory? Is there anything too great to ask of him? Is there any request that he would not exhaust the limits of his love to do on our behalf? Gethsemane says, no, there's not. So he says, ask. Ask me to do great things in your life, in the life of your friends, your family, the community that I have put around you knowing that I will do whatever you ask for my glory. You see, he didn't die so you and I could just sit and experience this wonderful American dream and play church, huddle up and talk about how bad things are getting in here and out there. That's not why he died. He died to bring the nations to worship him. That is what he desires. He desires our worship of him. He died to turn the people like Saul who were murderers, people who, like Saul, who were almost to the point of genocide, trying to wipe out the early church to turn them into Paul's, transform haters into passionate worshipers. So here is my question for you this morning. I've got a couple as we end up our service. Does the size of your prayers match the size of his sacrifice? That's a big one. Does the size of your prayers match the size of his sacrifice? Are our prayers these, God, give me a good day? Or are we asking God to do big things in our lives? Are we asking God to mend broken relationships? Are we asking God to take the people that are far away from him and bring them close? Take those people like that were Saul and turn them into Paul's. Are we asking God to do great things through our kids? Are we asking God to make them into world changers? People who will reach out and bring glory to him. Does the size of your prayers match the size of a sacrifice? Next question. Is what you are pursuing with your life worthy of his sacrifice? It's a gut punch for me. Is what you are pursuing worthy of his sacrifice? Jesus didn't die so we could just get rich and live an easy life. That's not why he died. That's not what Gethsemane is about. We are dealing here with eternity. 
something so important. Jesus went through Gethsemane and the cross to keep me from it. If Gethsemane is true, then my priorities have to be different. I have to devote myself to helping people come to know the immeasurable love of God through Christ Jesus. That is what we have to dedicate our lives toward. Or better yet, is what you're living for worth him dying for? God's plan is the best ever. It was, it's the best ever for us because God's plan gave us salvation. And by having salvation, by having our sins forgiven, by having being washed clean by the blood of the Lamb, we now can have that relationship with the Father. As we talked about last week, we now can experience the presence of God because of Jesus. That was God's plan. God's plan was the best ever because it was fulfilled out of love for you and I. Let's pray. God, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you that in that garden, that when he saw the horrors of hell, that when he saw the wickedness of my sin, that he was about to take upon himself, that he didn't walk away from it. I thank you that Jesus loved me. He loved all of us so much that he willingly went to the cross to die for us. Dear Lord, as we go through this next week, preparing for Easter, God, may our hearts be tender to what you did for us. God, may it change us God, as we understand your love for us, as we understand there's a lost and dying world around us that need the love of Jesus, may we be bold in our testimony. May we be bold in our life to share this love of Jesus. May our life, may what we pursue in our life be worth, worthy of your sacrifice. Dear God, I thank you for this passage this morning. I thank you for Mark recording it for us. Lord, I pray as we come back on Friday and we partake of the bread and the cup that our hearts and our lives will be ready to receive it. Lord, we ask it all in your son Jesus' precious name. Amen.